Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. There Are No Fakes, a TV original documentary, takes us through two very different worlds, from the fine art galleries of Toronto's fanciest neighborhoods to the criminal underbelly of Thunder Bay. But what connects them? The paintings of Norvell Morisot, a very influential Anishinaabe artist. Norval Morisot has huge significance. He's the first contemporary Indigenous art star. But there were people who have been poisoning Morisot's legacy. This painting is alive. That's when I went into the gallery. <laughs> I bought my painting. Little did I know, the spider web was around me. Close your eyes. Imagine bright, piercing colors outlined in bold black paint. Figures that depict animals, spiritual symbolism, and traditional Anishinaabe stories. Even if you've never heard of Norvell Morisot, you've likely seen his work, whether it's at an art gallery or at a gift shop. And if you have heard of him, you might know a bit about his story. He's known as the godfather of the Woodland School of Art. And in the 1960s, he became the first indigenous artist to show his work in a contemporary art gallery. But his influence extended far beyond any gallery wall. First you drive me down to the pits of the bottom of hell by your missionaries. And then later on, you lift me up with medals. And no matter what I want... He really understood the force and the power that he had and, and played with that. In the same way, he was really pushing art in new directions. He was pushing the way people thought of Indigenous people in new directions also. Fast forward to the mid-2000s, Kevin Hearn from the Bare Naked Ladies is looking to buy a Morisot work and finds one at an art gallery in Toronto. But not long after... He's told that the painting is a fake. When he shows it as part of a guest curatorship at the AGO, and senior curators there raise grave doubts about its authenticity and order that it be taken down from the show and it can't be called a Morisot. That's Jamie Kastner, a documentary filmmaker who also happens to be an old high school friend of Hearn's. And Kevin goes back and tries to deal with this with the, with the gallery owner who refuses to give him his money back. And Kevin, in short order, finds himself in the middle of, a, of, of quite a large feud with a crazy cast of characters. When Jamie heard about Hearn's legal battle against the art gallery, he set out to make a documentary about it. In the process, he meets that crazy cast of characters and learns some shocking things about the lengths some people will go to profit off of an indigenous artist's work. Jamie Kastner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I just, I guess we'll start just sort of from the very beginning. How did this story come to you? This story came to me completely at random. Uh, I knew uh, Kevin Hearn of the Bare Naked Ladies from high school. And uh, in addition to playing with the Bare Naked Ladies, he also played, uh, played with Lou Reed, 
uh, and it so happens that he he was music, he was Lou Reed's musical director for the last seven years of Lou's life. Oh wow! So I had known Kevin. And I actually approached him around the time uh, Lou died, within a year or two of, of Lou's death, so I think this was 2015, about uh, doing a Lou documentary. And uh, Kevin and I had not been in close touch in the intervening decades, but, you know, still friendly. And, and um, uh, it was not to be the Lou thing at that point, but he said, I'm involved in this other story that might be of interest to you. And he pulled out his phone and he showed me this National Post article and began telling me about this court case that he was involved in, and that's how it all began. And this and this court case involved uh, he was, I guess, uh, suing an art gallery that had sold him a, a fake Nove- Norvell Morisot painting. And could you just talk a bit about who Norvell Morisot was and why it was so important? Norvell Morisot is uh, one of the most important Canadian artists. Period. Uh, and certainly one of the most important indigenous uh, Canadian artists. Uh, he was the first, uh, uh, he came from abject poverty, kind of born in, in Thunder Bay and, and uh, living in around Beardmore and, and there, and, and uh, came from living in a, on a dirt floor and, you know, growing up in the, the full, you know, residential school experience and, and all the... Um, attendant horrors, uh, to becoming fairly young, uh, the first, he was the first indigenous art star anywhere. He created an entire school of painting, which very few artists, including, say, the group of seven did not do. And, and Morisot's, uh, the so-called Woodland School, it's been called, um, is built on, on a world of mythical animal-rooted figures that are drawn from Anishinaabe myth and culture, and uh, uh, had had previously, you know, not existed as artwork per se, but that became the the basis for for uh, uh, the visual language and the school of art that he created, which is now incredibly recognizable. It's what what comes to mind for most people when you think of what native painting looks like. I was going to say I, I recognized it uh, when I saw the film. Like I saw, and I didn't know it was him, but I I I'd definitely seen his art before. I remember seeing um, Tanya Talega's last uh, book, Seven Fallen Feathers. Uh, I think that was her his uh, son who painted painted uh, the cover the cover I, of that. Yeah, whose son, his son who is in in the film, right? And whose and whose son. In other words, Morisot's grandson is one of the the uh, seven, seven fallen feathers. feathers. Yeah. Yes, it's it's a style that is is widely uh, uh, imitated and adopted, or you know, insofar it's become a school of painting. There are, there are now many many artists working in that school, but he really created it. He uh, he was uh, uh, seen. His work was seen by Picasso and Chagall. Uh, he showed in Europe at the Pompidou Center, among other places. He he got the moniker Picasso of the North, mm. and he was the first Indigenous artist to have a, a full retrospective, a solo retrospective at the National Gallery of Canada, which was in 2006, a year before his death. It's Norval Morisot, a 31-year-old Ojibwe painter whose works were publicly displayed for the first time last week. What is your your name? But if you want to say it in Ojibwe, Ozaapognesis, you just could say it fast. Ozaapognesis? No. Not even close, eh? 
So where does his, I guess, life take him? Where does he kind of uh, end up? I mean, he's had this major success. He had a wild. So yeah, he he kind of came from nothing. Had this had this huge success early on. He had a pretty wild. He was he was a rock star, and he led a rock star life. That's how I look at it. Uh, um, he he. Um, you know, was was heavily into drinking and other substances at different times. Uh, he he really lived and and from what I gather, f- embraced the highs and the lows. You know, and took it all as part of part of the experience of being alive. You know, and went went from from you know lavish riding around in limos to to sleeping on the streets. You know, well into his the the time of you know past the time he'd become famous. Um, he, he had various dealings with a whole range of people along the way. And, and, um, then at a certain point, the last 20 years of his life, he kind of, he cleaned up and, and, uh, uh, became very, very, let's say his heyday was, his initial heyday was in the sixties and seventies. And while his, his output remained consider, you know, extremely prolific, I think throughout going through a variety of different uh, uh, phases and, and sort of variations on the, on the woodland theme and color schemes and so on. He, he then, uh, um, it, so let's see, he died in, in 2007, quickly doing the math. So yes, from the, from the late 80s, living in Vancouver at that point, he uh, um, kind of took under wing and was in turn taken under wing by uh, uh, a fellow who became his adoptive son and, and then subsequently that fellow's wife uh, as well, uh, the Vadises, and kind of uh, uh, cleaned up and became extremely productive and 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 uh, his professional career rose again he began he was then represented by a, a Yorkville gallery uh and and began you know doing doing well again uh and then he got he got parkinson's and and ultimately you know died of of complications uh in 2007 well i want to go back to to kevin hearn's part in this because, I mean, he, he sues the gallery that sold him this painting. Um, and this leads to, I guess, a court case and all these very interesting characters kind of show up. Can you just talk about who are some of the people that uh, are on the side of the gallery in this? Well, so, so Kevin buys this painting and uh, I believe it's around 2006. I don't have every single date in mind. It's, more so is is still alive, but but not for not for too long. But he is still alive because the gallery the uh, gallery owner uh, whose name was Joe McLeod. So Kevin buys this painting at a, at a reputable seeming gallery in Yorkville called Maslack McLeod. Uh, the gentleman who sells it to him, Joe McLeod, also represents some of Morisot's sons and has has a bunch of Morisot's work there. And it seems like a legit place and he tells Kevin at the time oh he's this is the value is going to go up a lot he buys the painting for $20,000 it's called spirit energy of mother earth and he uh, is told that the painting will go up in value when Morisot dies which is not particularly why why Kevin is buying it but you know nevertheless shelling out 20,000 bucks for something um so he it, it, he begins to have doubts about the authenticity of this painting um, when he shows it a, as part of a guest curatorship at the AGO, 
and senior curators there raise grave doubts about its authenticity and order that it be taken down from the show and it can't be called a Morriso. And Kevin goes back and tries to deal with this with the, with the gallery owner who refuses to give him his money back and or or do anything to pursue you know the the doubts that have that have crept in about this work and kevin in short order finds himself in the middle of a of, of quite a large feud with a crazy cast of characters <laughs> uh uh who range from gallery owners to auctioneers to collectors all of whom are deeply invested in a, a species, let's call it, of Morisot paintings that are that are broadly known as the black dry brush uh, type of Morisots, and they're called that, which which is the type that Kevin had bought, and they're called black dry brush because um, Morisot typically signed his paintings on the front in a series of Cree syllabics. And then there's this species of paintings, and, and there are uh, uh, an estimated 3,000 of these paintings around, which are signed on the back in English in uh, a kind of faded black paint that looks as though it's the kind of paint that was used up, you know, if you were painting in black on the front, and then you've flipped the canvas over and finished off what was on the brush, so it's kind of fading. Those are the black dry brush paintings. So they're actually fairly, you don't need a PhD to tell 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 the difference between the the, the doubtful ones and and the the non disputed ones. I was going to ask because there, I mean, there are other attributes too. Sorry, because well, because just because the unto, to the untrained eye, I mean, if you were to see that painting and the one that Kevin has, I mean, it looks pretty. I mean, to me at least, I'm a novice. Uh, it looks like a real uh, Morrison painting. It's certainly beautiful. Um, but I guess it's kind of hard to tell. And if if it wasn't for this, I guess black. Brush that would be impossible to tell, right? I wouldn't say it's impossible to tell. As as people discuss in the film, there are there are other telltale signs of this uh, that raise doubts about Morisot paintings, uh, uh, color schemes, types of figures that he used, the general kind of visual language, the iconography, that the brush strokes, the you know he painted with his finger at certain ti- at certain times, and and there's a sequence in which he typically. Uh, uh, created his paintings from from drawings to colors to outlines to this thick black uh, outline at the end and some some so once you begin to to become acquainted with that language you can you can tell the difference without even saying you know presuming to say what is what is real or what is not myself you know you can see that there are there is a distinct a couple of distinct species of Morisos out there. I've heard you say the word species of painting. Can you just what, what is? Why do you say species? What's that? Species. I think it's actually a term I've picked up on a term that one of the lawyers used in the film, Brian Schiller, the, the lawyer for Joe McLeod, uh, used in the film to describe it. I mean, you could call it a a tranche, uh, a section of of the body. Or it's, a, it's, in other words, it's it's a distinct uh, um, group of paintings within the body of Morisot's oeuvre. You know that have 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 distinctive characteristics different from the rest of what he did. That's all. That's all I mean. Okay. Most notably, there is the black dry brush, but on top of that, there is there is a certain uh, milky color schemes as opposed to the bright colors more so often used. There is a, a certain fixation on very toothy creatures. There there are other things that people that that people who know better uh, uh, than I explain in the film about what makes this. Group of paintings or species of paintings. Were you were you familiar with like art fraud before doing this film? Like, was this something that you would 
know much about or how big it, of an ish, issue it was in Canada? I was aware. I was aware of art fraud. You know, as as anybody is, these stories crop up uh, uh, from time to time in the paper, and your your eyes kind of widen uh, hearing the sums or hearing the the brazenness of of the crime. Or I, you know, I think I've seen the odd other doc on on uh, uh, this kind. I had seen the odd other doc, but no, I was I was by no means uh, an expert on it or or following this closely. But as as one does when you when you start making a film on something, you begin to to you know plunge deeply into into uh, the situation. So you mentioned uh, you know or we mentioned you know the, this gallery they they go to court with uh, with Kevin Hearn and uh, these other characters show up. There's a there's an art collector. There's a an auctioneer. Every time there's an auction, maybe every week or so, I counted the number of paintings that were there and made a note. And after a while, I got up to 800 paintings. This is too many, and they don't look quite right. Over the course of your auction career, how many Morisos did you sell, roughly? Probably 1,500 to 2,000 in the ballpark area. We went probably from making two or 300,000 a year to making you know, one to two million dollars a year. It was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. What interest did they have in, I guess, ensuring that these paintings weren't proven to be false or fake? Well, they behave, first of all, just to give you the way that Kevin experienced it, the way I heard about it, and the way I try to lay it out in the film. For the audience, it's, it's yes, he sort of buys this thing, has this dispute, winds up in court, and and is suddenly in the middle of this fray in which these people with vested interests are behaving in a way that one would not normally associate <laughs> with, you know, the highfalutin world of art, of fine art. They're very working class, I find. They're not like elites. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't personally characterize <laughs> it as a class as a class issue per Fair se, enough. but it's it's uh, because there are some there are some refined people doing some terrible, you know, superficially refined people doing some scandalous things in this film also absolutely uh, uh, but I I would say that that they are doing things you wouldn't you wouldn't this group of people are doing things that you don't normally associate with the kind of wine and cheese vernissage crowd you know mm-hmm. it's it's they are slagging each other off uh, on camera as they do online where where they characterize people characterizing each other as Nazis you know likening <clears throat> the more so conflict to to taking a view on it to burning to the Nazis these burning books. Uh, they are, are there are a dozen dozens of other uh, uh, court cases around this thing. Uh, they're an incredibly litigious group of people, and they are. It even gets physical. Rocks are thrown through gallery windows. People are putting other people in headlocks on on courtroom <laughs> steps. And and here is you know mild mannered Kevin Hearn <laughs> wading into this. Our video showed a car driving up in front and, and someone getting out of it, but the image was not defined enough to be able to identify the person. At that time, I was under severe stress. Even my life had been threatened. Well, we got to do something about this guy. Don Robinson, are you listening? What are you going to do when they come for you? That made me feel... The reason that they are are so uh, uh, 
passionate about it is because there is actually a huge amount of money at stake because there is Kevin's painting, the concern is, uh, the outcome of Kevin's trial will set a precedent that will affect the value of some 3,000 other paintings of the same species, um, conservatively worth $30 million dollars if you assume that each of those paintings are worth roughly roughly $10,000. That's amazing. That making it, you know, the largest art scam, art fraud scam in Canadian history. So a lot so a lot of a lot is at stake basically in this case. There's an enormous amount at stake and what's at stake uh, although it's it's cast in cultural terms often ironically because you have these these factions of mainly white people each, you know, badmouthing each other each uh, purportedly in the name of defending this indigenous legend's uh, uh, legacy, uh, what we know for sure is that there's a heck of a lot of money at stake. I found that very ironic, actually, that they would they would cast it in the... In, like, I remember, I think one uh, gentleman in particular says something about the white man uh, to exploiting... Uh, more so. More so, and, and he uses himself white. And he couldn't be whiter. Yeah. And I know it's, it is it is sort of... But it's it's a, a, a deliberate and, and has for some time been quite a successful smokescreen, you know, to pursue to pursue their their strategy. You know, it's uh, it's very Trumpian in a mm. way. They're they're uh, accusing the accusers of 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 exactly what they they are are uh, likely guilty of themselves, and and this you know they're they're exploiting very cynically. I would say the you know the the justifiable concerns around indigenous issues. Mm-hmm. Did you find it when you were interviewing them kind of hard to trust what they were telling you? So. I came to this, as I mentioned, through Kevin. You know, I knew Kevin. But I said to Kevin, and he told me the the kind of bare bones of this story when we first met. And and it is a wild story, so wild that I could barely believe that what he was telling me was true. I mean, I really thought, has this guy gotten, you know, so (laughs) obsessed with this that he's lost perspective? Because the stuff is so fantastical. And I told him, but nevertheless, I was intrigued. And I, I said to him, you know, listen... Even though we're friends, if I if I do this, it's as a journalist, you'll have no creative control, and it's imperative that I get the other side of the story as well. And to his credit, he was totally fine with that, and those were the terms on which we proceeded. And uh, um, and so then I had so I was handed a certain amount of a, a num- amount of research and characters that Kevin and his lawyer Jonathan Summer had had already dug up. Uh, so that's a gift as as a doc maker, but then there was the other side uh, uh, to whom they certainly had no no contact that had to be that had to be kind of recruited, and I believe that they believe it. You know, I believe that whatever that means. You know, do they really really believe it, or have they just said it so many times that they believe it? Are they are they so you know people can believe all sorts of things people join cults people do do all you know believe in all sorts of stuff that I can't understand but but that you know I don't know you know they're they're certainly convincing and they've they've convinced themselves or they're deeply enough invested in in their point of view that they're holding their ears and they don't want to hear anything to the contrary. Well, this this talk takes a lot of twists and I, I don't I try I really don't want to spoil anything, but I mean it does lead you to Thunder Bay and there is this art, I guess, forgery ring up there 
that are connected to Morisot's family. And I just wonder what it was like for you to uncover that information while you were filming. Well, I had heard... I had heard about this, and I had heard about this, you know, right from the beginning when I, when I, when Kevin told me the the bones of the story, and it's one of the things that you're shaking your head, saying this cannot be, you know, it 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 sounds too too wild to be true. We get wonderful access, uh, I, I'm happy to say, in the film to uh, uh, a number of people very deeply involved in all aspects who speak to this. The audience can decide uh, whom to believe or not. Uh, people, some people admit to things. Some people accuse others of things. Those people, in some cases, get a chance to respond. I would say that that uh, um, Morisot lived many lives. And he had, uh, I believe, I hope I'm not getting this number wrong, he had six or seven children with his with his wife um and he he left them behind as you know fame and 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 his rock star life uh which included you know sex with men relationships with men and and you know uh and i imagine that there are there are He's an anomaly, right? He came from nothing, and he and he, he struck it. He became a star, and and uh, uh, that didn't happen to his other family members who who remained in the same kind of situation that he that he grew up in. And people in desperate circumstances do desperate things, and you know, so on certain level. A number of of revelations in this story are shocking. On another hand, I hope that they're placed in a context in which in which people people can understand why such things might happen. And I view I think there are a lot of victims in this film, uh, uh, and you know, and then there's a handful of uh, bad guys who um, conveniently, I suppose, happen to all be white and they're the people who uh, um, <clears throat> they're the people who have really been profiting from this they're the people who have been making millions of dollars and uh, it's not it's not the poor people in Thunder Bay who have been you do you know, know do you think of, of Morriso as a victim in this absolutely I think that uh, um, I mean I think he's he's a complex character I don't think one could characterize him s- only as a victim, he he led the life he wanted to lead, and uh, uh, that took him many wild places. And he made and he made a number of de- decisions which which you and I might consider, you know, questionable or uh, um, unconventional. I think part of the decision, uh, some of the decisions he made, I would guess, are are informed by his, you know, his his worldview as an Anishinaabe person as opposed to as a white person in terms certain certainly in terms of of issues surrounding ownership exclusive versus communal ownership I think I think there's all sorts of layers to this so he's there's nothing simple to be said about about Morisot but I do think he is a victim in this scam and uh, it's it's a huge scam that uh, uh, that he tried to fight without giving too much away, uh, although we can't seem to help ourselves here. Uh, but he uh, 
you know, it it devalued his work financially, and it devalues his the the value. Of, it devalues his his legacy as uh, Greg Hill, the the uh, indigenous curator, indigenous art curator from the National Gallery, says in the film. Uh, uh, you know, the kind of integrity of his of, of his legacy is is key to to establishing you know his his worth as an artist if it starts getting watered down by all this inferior crap that is that's flooding the market purporting to be more so's that that messes with his his value in 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 all regards you know aesthetic historical financial so yes i i definitely see him as as a victim in that regard was it tricky for you as a non-Indigenous person to, I guess, approach this film? Like how, how – or the subject, how comfortable were you, I guess, uh, making it? Well, I mean, I am – you know, I have, among other things, done a certain amount of investigative journalism. And I um, saw this initially as as mainly an art fraud and a kind of cultural fraud film. And as I really began to understand the, the – uh, uh, depths that it, that it would it would require going to within you know the indigenous community um, I had a number of I had a number of advisors as one inevitably does plunging into another world for an investigation um, uh, a number of whom are are indigenous people and many of whom wanted to remain behind the scenes. Uh, because there's there's a lot of risk involved in this. I mean, we're we're thank you carefully dancing around talking about where this film goes in the second hour in Thunder Bay. But suffice to say, you meet some really nasty people who are still out there, uh, uh, or you meet the victims of of some very nasty people. And there there is a lot, and and you meet a lot of nasty people too. I don't want you to feel that you don't. <laughs> I want you not not going to be cheated in that regard. Uh, um, so these these advisors of mine, these indigenous advisors, many of whom feel it's it's better for them to operate behind the scenes. But we're we're involved right from the get go. I couldn't have gotten the access I got with without them. They had to trust me. And ultimately, I persuaded one of these one of these people to to kind of step forward and and take his rightful credit. And I, I'm referring to uh, Mark Anthony Jacobson, who is the executive producer of the film. He's a, a, a woodland, senior woodland artist, an Anishinaabe uh, artist uh, based currently in BC, who was a friend of Morisot's and who has been deeply involved in this, in this case for over a decade, so long before I was involved, and, and brought together many of the key, of the key players. And, and without his involvement and blessing, you know, it, it, this story could not have have come to the surface. So, so him and other people wanted. So, I, I, I had the involvement of a number of of indigenous people, deeply involved, guiding. You know, right from the get go. So that that kind of you know, yeah, made me more comfortable with that with those aspects of it. Beyond that, I think honestly, there is some value in journalism to coming from the outside. I think that that you know, you've alluded to <clears throat> family members being involved. This story has been sitting there. You know, the first story was written in a major paper about fake Morisos that I'm aware of in 2000 in the National Post. This story has been sitting there since then and has been covered extensively. And I think that the reason that no one has has touched it until now is because they were afraid of touching it for for one reason or another. The the threats of the extremely litigious bullies involved in this thing – 
Uh, and and I can see how from within the indigenous community, it would be exponentially touchy to address some of this stuff. So sometimes, you know, maybe it's better to have someone with with no dog in the fight to come in and, and tell the story. That's mm. what journalists are for. Did you feel a sense of, I guess, an adrenaline rush making this film? Do you mean was I scared? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. I mean, you know, I don't know how I got into doing this work. You know, six years ago, I was making a film on disco. I mean, I've done, I've done stuff that is, I've done lighter stuff. I've done heavier stuff, often a mix of the two. I found myself in some hairy situations before on previous films for, for TVO, in fact, um, but, and, and others. But the, the uh, um, yeah, definitely. You're you're entering a, a, a criminal world in a, a small city that you're not from, and your your people are telling you very private and risky stuff. You know, I flew in. I, I was there a number of times. I'm talking about Thunder Bay, you know, which has since become you know celebrated for its notoriety, <laughs> yeah. if you could say that. But at the time, nobody had particularly heard of it. It was not a selling point when I was pitching this film to say, "Ooh," and then we go to Thunder Bay. Maybe we're going to go, what? <laughs> uh, um, but uh, uh, the, the you know, I flew in and out of there because you, you just don't know. You don't know who knows. You don't know what. what yeah, yes, I was scared. You don't know who knows what. You don't know who is talking to whom and, and what's going on. And there's, yeah. So, yes, yes, there were, there were definitely uh, some, some moments of, of trepidation. How do you feel about it now? I mean, how many months ago did you kind of wrap it up? Well, I mean, it launched at, uh, at the Hot Docs Festival. So in, in the spring, that was the beginning of May. So it's been a few months. How do I feel? Am I still scared? Well, are you, I guess, like, I guess, like, watching it from, like, a, a little bit, you have a bit of distance from it now. I guess I wonder, how, do, how does it make you feel when you watch it? Well, I mean, I feel uh, there are many aspects. I'm very proud of it as a piece of work. I'm proud of what, what uh, uh, we all, you know, it, it, many people are involved in the making of these things. And, and uh, the work that, that was done with my, my excellent crew, my editor, Mike Cannon, who sat there, you know, with me for six plus months, <laughs> fine tuning all of this stuff. The the uh, uh, so I'm very proud of it as a piece of work. I'm very uh, uh, thrilled uh, uh, and relieved that it's gotten the extremely warm reception that it's gotten. I don't. I I tend to make things that are controversial and political, and so I don't always expect. Uh, 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 an entirely warm welcome, but this film has pretty well gotten that, and I, I'll take it. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, I did have the sense that I was working on something, you know, it sounds kind of corny and presumptuous to say, but, you know, it landed in my lap, and I had the sense that uh, of a certain responsibility that something important, an important Canadian story had landed, and, and you know, I had to do it justice. And so I'm very glad that, 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 that people are... As as astounded and appalled by this story as I hope they would be when it when it came out, there are aspects, there are parts of the film. You know, I, I've it's been it, it's still touring around in theaters and and festivals. So I go from to some of them and still go and do Q and A's. And there are still parts of the film that I find uh, uh, painful to watch and and uh, what these these people are laying bare. And uh, is is incredible. I mean, there are there are, yeah there are a couple of real heroic characters uh, uh, in the film. And I, I'll say that I I believe also 
uh, that that in addition to to some people we get to later in the film, I think I think Kevin Hearn's pursuit of the whole thing and dogged pursuit of it is is also heroic, and and really should be commended. I mean, there are a lot of people who, a lot of art cases, art fraud cases, don't go. Uh, uh, all the way to to conviction because it requires significant amounts of of like determination and money to uh, uh, to see them through and most people lack one or the other of those things. Luckily, we're dealing with uh, you know a rock star who who got piqued by the the injustice of this initially personally personally, but then I think. Uh, was moved by by the much larger injustices that that uh, uh, he unearthed, he and his lawyer unearthed as they as they pursued it, and has been driven to to follow it all the way. Well, it's a great film, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing all your t- all this time with us. Oh, thanks, Colin. It's uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Just a week after I talked to Kastner, the Court of Appeal ruled in Hearn's favor. The judge awarded him $60,000 and said that the gallery was deliberately elusive in proving the authenticity of the painting. And that's the podcast. There Are No Fakes premieres February 1st on broadcast and on TVO.org. Now we're going to take a little podcation, but we promise to be back in 2020 with brand new episodes. So please stay subscribed to this feed. If you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and better yet, tell a friend. You can write to us at ondocs at TVO.org and let us know what you think of this episode. And you can also follow me on Twitter at ColinEllis81. Thanks to producers Chantal Berganza and Matthew O'Mara, and production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. Kathy Vay is the executive producer for Digital. We'll catch you at the next screening.